would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're not quite sure where that is in the Bible, the page reference is listed for you in the bulletin for the red Bibles in the chairs around you. We're continuing on in our study of John's Gospel, and uh, we finally made it to chapter 2, and we're looking at uh, the first 12 verses of chapter 2 today. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to, his, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. Father, we want to see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. We want to learn and understand what we need to understand. And so we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit the same spirit who caused John to write these words down would be at work here now in our hearts and minds that we might understand what this means. We pray you would do this, Father, so that we can grow in our faith and love for you. And as a result, we can become more and more the people in our actions and our thoughts and in our words that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the mid to late 1990s, uh, there was a fairly well-known comedian uh, who was uh, much loved, and he had a regular routine that he would go through called, Here's Your Sign. He said that it was pointing out the regular dumb things that he saw in the world around him as he lived his life. He, he said he imagined in his mind that he printed up a sign on a piece of paper uh, that said, I'm not very smart. And then each time that someone around him did something that was less than intelligent, he would say, here's your sign. So he gave some examples. He said his wife had a birthday. She was turning 38 and she wasn't very happy about it. And so he decided that rather than getting her one cake, he would get her two cakes at the bakery this time. So he went to the bakery and he got two cakes. And on one cake, he had the number three written with the word happy. And on the other cake, he had the number eight written with the word birthday. 
And he took the two cakes up to the uh, counter to pay for them. And the cashier took a look at the cakes and then looked up at the man and he said, Oh, do you have twins? (laughs) He said, Yes, my wife was pregnant for five years. Here's your sign. He tells another story about being in an office building uh, on the ground floor and he was standing in front of some elevators and the up button was pushed with the arrow pointing up. It was lit up and a man came up to him and stood with him at the elevator and he said, excuse me, are these the elevators that go up? And he said, uh, no, actually, these are the elevators that go side to side. The, the ones that go up are down the hall. And the man turned around and started walking down the hall. Here's your sign. He went on a ride along with a trucker buddy of his and uh, they got the truck stuck underneath an overpass. They were standing on the side of the road waiting for some help to come and a police officer pulled up and got out and took a look at the truck that's wedged underneath the, the overpass. And then he looked at the trucker and the police officer said, did you get your truck stuck? And without missing a beat, he said that the trucker said, Nope, I was delivering that overpass and I ran out of gas. Here's your sign. Now, what does this have to do with John 2? Well, not a whole lot, but we do have at the end of our passage here in verse 11, John tells us basically, here's your sign after Jesus does this miracle. Now, he's not saying that because as a joke, because people have done some less than intelligent things. But what John is telling us here when he says that this this miracle that Jesus does in Cana is a sign. He, he's telling us that this wedding in Cana 2000 years ago is a sign for us to understand and to believe. Now, what's a sign? A sign is something that points past itself to something else. It's an event or an activity that that says you're supposed to look past the event itself to see something bigger, something important, something meaningful. And in John chapter 2, verse 11, John says that this miracle that took place at this wedding, this wedding feast, is a sign. It points us to something beyond just itself. And so the question that we're supposed to ask is, what's the bigger picture going on here? What is this pointing to that I am supposed to understand and believe? And whatever it's pointing to must be very important. Why do we know that? Well, because this is the first miracle that Jesus performed in his public ministry. This is the end of the very first week of his public ministry. Seven days earlier, John the Baptist had seen Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first week of his ministry. And Jesus decides to kick off his public ministry. He is going to perform a miracle. Now, if you were going to perform a miracle in that kind of a context, you might pick something like, You know, taking a couple pieces of bread and a couple pieces of fish and feeding 5,000 people with it. Or maybe even healing somebody of a disease. Or even raising somebody from the dead. But that wasn't Jesus' first miracle. What was his first miracle? He made some wine at a wedding reception so the party could keep going. That was what he did. And John says, it's a sign for us. It's a sign for us to understand and to believe. So what's this pointing us to? 
I think at least three things that we'll see today. It's pointing us to why Jesus was there, why Jesus had come into this world. And it's also a sign of the way that Jesus was going to accomplish his purpose. And thirdly, it's a sign of the extent of what Jesus accomplished. So we'll look at those three things today and then we'll ask ourselves, so what? What difference does all of this make for us? So first of all, it's a sign. And as a sign, it's pointing us to why Jesus came. Now, before we get into that, let's get a little bit of context that will help us understand a first century Middle Eastern wedding. Those were much bigger deals than we have weddings here. And the reception, the the feast that took place afterwards wasn't something that just took place for a few hours. It was for an entire week, seven days of eating and drinking and celebrating. And you didn't just have a guest list of maybe 50 people or 100 people or 300 people that would come to the reception. The entire town, the entire village was invited. It was usually held at the home of the newlyweds, and the groom was responsible to make sure that all of the provisions were provided for. The wine, which was an important staple in that culture, was important not just at wedding feasts, but especially at wedding feasts. And to run out of wine at a wedding feast was a big problem. It was a social disaster. It was a hospitality nightmare. It was extremely embarrassing. In fact, there were actually laws in place that if you were the host of a wedding feast and you ran out of wine, you and your family could be sued. So as we see what Jesus did here, we see how gracious and kind and compassionate Jesus is. He saved this groom and his family from shame and ridicule and embarrassment and possibly even legal problems. But we have to remember, we're supposed to be looking past just the details of the event to what it's pointing us to. And the first thing that we can see what it's pointing us to is why Jesus came. Notice what Jesus decided to use to hold the wine that he created. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Jesus decided as he was going to do this miracle and change water into wine, he picked these six stone jars that were sitting in the house that they would hold the wine. These, These were large stone jars or pots, and we're told that they held 20 to 30 gallons each. And they had a purpose, and the purpose is given to us in the text. Their purpose was that they, uh, that they were uh, used to the, hold the water for the Old Testament purification rites. Now you might wonder, what are those purification rites? Well, if you lived in the home of a devout Jewish family, then you followed Old Testament rules and instructions about how you had to purify and cleanse things like your cooking utensils and your eating utensils, pots and plates and cups, and even the cooking surfaces that you were going to use. So why did God give his people instructions uh, about purifying those things in the Old Testament? Well, they were a part of the larger sacrificial system. All of those laws and the instructions were given to God's people to make them know and understand that they were sinners. They needed to be cleansed 
in order to worship a perfectly holy God, the people of God and the things of their everyday life had to be purified and cleansed and washed. It was pointing people to an ultimate, uh, an ultimate purification and cleansing that would be possible only through the Messiah who was to come in the future. A Messiah who would wash his people completely and finally not with water stored in jars, but with his blood spilled on the cross. So do you see what Jesus is doing by taking these purification jars and changing the water into wine for the party? Jesus was pointing to why he was there, why he came into the world. The days of the Old Testament purification rites were over. The old covenant was coming to an end with its sacrificial system. A new covenant had begun with the arrival of Jesus, just as Jeremiah had prophesied. He was the long-awaited Messiah, and he had arrived. The one who would provide the ultimate and eternal purification that the jars were pointing to was in their midst. Think about what Jesus said at the Last Supper. He took a cup that was full of wine and he said to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was through his blood that he purified and cleansed his people from their sins. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, his blood covers every one of our sins and our record with our faithful, with our Father is purified. This is why he came. This is what it's pointing us to, the why of why he came. He came to purify his people. But I think the sign also points us not just to the why of Jesus coming, but to the way that he would accomplish his purpose, his purpose of coming to purify his people. What was the way he was going to do that? We can see it several different ways here in the text. And in the first way, it's, I think we can see it in the kind of odd response uh, that Jesus had to Mary. Uh, so Mary recognized that the wine had run out. And so she went to Jesus and, and said to Jesus, the wine has run out. We don't have any more wine. And in verse 4, Jesus responded. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that really is kind of an odd response if you think about it. They're at a wedding feast. Mary was there. She noticed that the wine had run out. And she didn't want the newlyweds to be ridiculed. So she goes to Jesus to tell them that the wine ran out. Now, we don't know at this point how... Uh, how much Mary fully understood who Jesus was and all that he was going uh, to accomplish. But it's probably safe to assume that after 30 years with Jesus, she understood that there was something different about him, that there was something special uh, and unique about him. And, and she obviously thought that somehow he could help the situation out because she comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And so she brought the problem to him. And then Jesus responds by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I need to tell you that there are lots of differing opinions by good commentators and good preachers about the sense of what Jesus is saying here. There are some that think, because of the way that the Greek words are uh, written, that he was actually uh, being respectful to Mary when he responded this way. In fact, if any of you have the NIV translation, they actually believe that he was trying to be respectful. And so it's actually translated, dear woman. 
There are others that believe that it is exactly what it sounds like. Kind of an abrupt, brusque pushback on Mary. And I actually think that that's correct. The question is, why would Jesus respond to Mary with this kind of blunt, abrupt, brusque response? I've had the chance to officiate or attend five weddings since April. And that was after going almost two years with uh, almost no weddings. And you know, when you're at a wedding, uh, you think about a lot of things. Uh, Lots of things come to mind. Uh, But one thing I think is pretty uh, normal, pretty usual for people to think about, and that's their own wedding. If you go to a wedding and you're married, then you think back to your wedding day. If you go to a, a wedding and you're not married, you might think ahead into the future what your wedding day might look like. Um, it, <coughs> it's a very normal thing to do. It's a very human thing to do to think about our own wedding. And so here Jesus is at a wedding feast. He's been at a wedding and now a wedding feast. And I think it's very likely that Jesus was thinking about his own wedding. And you say, wait a minute, Jesus didn't get married. He didn't have a wedding. Or did he? In the Old Testament, over and over again, God refers to himself as the bridegroom of his people. In fact, we read earlier from Jeremiah 31, and God called himself our husband. And in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls himself our bridegroom, the bridegroom of his people. And at the end of the Bible and at the end of Revelation, we read that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus was likely thinking about his own wedding feast, a wedding feast with his bride, the church, his people that would take place at the end of time when Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's at the, uh, the upper room at the Lord's Supper, I won't drink this again until I'm with you in your father's kingdom. And as we understand this, as we start to see this, uh, what Jesus said to Mary and the way that he said it to her starts to make sense. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That word hour shows up several times. A number of times in John's gospel and every single time that John uses it, it refers to Jesus's death. The hour of Jesus is the hour of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. Jesus was at this wedding feast. He was thinking about his own wedding feast with his redeemed people at the end of time. But he was also thinking about the fact that in order to get to that wedding feast, he had to get through his hour. He had to go to the cross And he had to die. That's why he said what he did to Mary. That's why he said it the way that he did. So this whole scene in Cana is a sign for us. It is pointing us to the way that Jesus would accomplish the purification of his people. It would be through his death. Through his death on the cross. You can see it, see this, uh, the, the way Jesus would do it through his death. Another way as we consider what is the kind of focal point or this whole miracle is revolving around. And that is on wine. During the Lord's Supper, Jesus took a cup and he told his disciples that it was the new covenant in his blood. And then each of the disciples got to drink from that cup. That is a cup of blessing. 
It is a cup of joy. It is a cup of peace. That's why it's so encouraging for us each week to come to the Lord's Supper because we drink a cup of blessing and we drink a cup of joy. But in order for us to get that cup, Jesus had to drink a different cup. He had to drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. And on the cross, he drank that cup dry. And we say it doesn't seem fair. And it isn't. But did you notice in, back in John chapter 2, Jesus did all the work in the miracle, but who got the credit? Look at verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus had done all the work in changing the water into wine. And who got the credit? The bridegroom. And we say, that's not fair. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus did all of the work of living a life of perfect love and obedience to his father, of dying on the cross, of paying for all of our sins, of rising from the grave. And when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we get all of his credit. That's the gospel of his grace and mercy. John is saying, here's your sign. Here is the sign of the way that Jesus would accomplish his purpose of the purification of his people. This is the way that he would end the old covenant and begin the new covenant. He would go and die on the cross. Thirdly, I want us to see that this miracle points us as a sign points us to the extent of what Jesus accomplished, the extent of it. You know, until relatively recently, there was a pretty normal custom at weddings that the bride and the groom wouldn't see each other on the wedding day until the bride appeared in the back of the room and began to walk to the front of the room. Now it's uh, common uh, for couples to do kind of a first look is what it's called, and they'll do some pictures before the ceremony, and that's fine if couples decide to do that. But if I'm officiating a service... Uh, where the bride and the groom have chosen not to see each other on the wedding day until the bride appears in the back of the room, I always like to watch the groom. I like to watch his face. I like to watch his reaction, his smile, the emotion that is there, the expectation that is there. What's in his mind at that moment when he sees his bride for the first time? He's thinking, this is the most beautiful bride in the world. He's thinking in full, he's full of love and, and delight and, and he's rejoicing in his heart and mind. And remember, Jesus said, he is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And if a human, sinful, fallen man can have those kind of thoughts about his human bride walking down the aisle on the wedding day, how much more so for our ultimate bridegroom when he sees his people, when he sees his bride, he is full of love and joy and delight when he thinks of you. He delights over you. That's what Zephaniah said in the passage that I used earlier in our prayer. Did you hear the words that he said? 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And then he says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord God Almighty looks at you as his bride and delights over you? Exalts in loud singing over you? That's what Zephaniah tells us is true. Do we believe it? This is the extent of what Jesus has accomplished on earth. He has redeemed us as his bride. And when he thinks of you, when he sees you, he is overflowing with love and joy and delight. And he rejoices over you with singing. That's the extent of what Jesus has accomplished. But we can see it also by what happens at the end. It wasn't just... Any kind of wine that Jesus provided for the bridegroom and the party. We read in verse 10 back in John chapter 2 that it was the best wine that usually was served uh, in a different way at at weddings. And here Jesus is saying uh, Jesus is providing the best wine at the end. You saved the best for last. And not only that, it wasn't just a little bit of the best wine. We're told that these jars that were full to the brim with water, then changed to wine. There's between 120 and 180 gallons of wine that Jesus created. This is the best wine that is abundant and overflowing. And again, it points us to the extent of what Jesus accomplished for us. His grace, the best grace, overflowing and abundant grace. And it's all for you as his people. Well, let's ask, so what? What difference should this make in our lives? Well, I think one thing that it means for us, this this picture of the gospel that we get here, this miracle, it reminds us that trying harder in life will never work. God's grace in the gospel is something that is simple to understand, but so often it is hard for us to believe consistently. As we see in this story, Jesus did all the work, And the bridegroom got all the credit. And in our relationship with God, Jesus does all the work and we get all the credit. So just trying to be a good person, just trying harder in life to do more good than bad, that won't work to earn God's acceptance. The only way to be a Christian, the only way to have our sins paid for, the only way to have righteousness credited to us, the only way to go to heaven is we have to put our trust and faith in the reality that Jesus did all of the work for us and we get the credit. And I don't think that that's just something that you have to believe and trust when you first become a Christian. I think Christians can regularly we forget this truth as well. At least we don't live in accord with it. We treat God as if we have to continually earn his acceptance and approval. We act like he doesn't delight over us. That in order for those passages in Zephaniah to be true of us, that God rejoices over us with singing, that he delights over us, that we somehow have to earn it. 
we act like we have to earn His blessing and earn His forgiveness. And I think, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's one of the reasons why we so often feel spiritually burned out. Jesus did all the work. He secured our acceptance with our Father. And we get all the credit. A second thing that I think we need to recognize from this passage is that we need to taste the wine. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus has given us a cup of the best wine, the best overflowing grace that there is, His grace, and we need to take that cup and drink it in. As we grow in our understanding of the extent of what Jesus has accomplished for us, that must impact how we live. The reality that the Lord God Almighty rejoices over us with singing of His abundant and overflowing delight for us, that must change how we think and how we live and what we say. It did for the disciples. If you look back again in verse 11, when they saw all of this take place, they certainly didn't understand everything that was happening, but they deepened their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so when we take all of this in, it is meant to deepen our faith and our love for Jesus and to change how we live. So what does that look like? Well, when we're anxious and worried, we remember that we have a Father that rejoices over us. He exalts over us with loud singing. He quiets us with His love. He loves and cares for us beyond what we can imagine. And He's promised to take care of us in the very best way possible for us. He has promised that He will provide what we need and to bring us through trials and to strengthen us so that we might persevere. So in those moments when we are anxious and worried, we let the hope of the gospel drive the anxious thoughts out of our minds. Or maybe you're here and your marriage is a mess. You have a spouse that's hard to love at times. You need to think about how much of a mess we are. Jesus' bride. And yet how much our bridegroom has and does and will faithfully love us. How patient he is with us. How steadfast and persevering he is with us. How forgiving and gracious he is with us. And so how much of a smaller thing it is for us to love and respect and be gracious to and forgive and be patient with our spouses. Or maybe when you're facing the temptation to give in to that besetting sin one more time. You remember that to give in to your sin, to give in to that temptation, is like being the host of a party where the wine runs out. Every other wine, other than the wine that Jesus gives to us, His grace, every other wine will run out eventually. Every one of our besetting sins and idols will give out and let us down and not bring us contentment or satisfaction or peace. We have to come back again to the extent of what Jesus accomplished. That must captivate our heart and our imagination so much. We would meditate on this truth so much that whatever is in front of us that is tempting us would become dull and uninteresting. We have to taste the wine. Lastly, we need to trust that Jesus knows what's best. I think it's particularly interesting the way that Mary responded to Jesus' comment. Did you notice that? Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if I had said that to my mother, 
with the kind of tone that I think probably was being said, she rightly would have looked at me and said, I'm your mother, don't talk to me that way. That's not what Mary did, is it? What did Mary do? After Jesus spoke to her, he turned, she turned to the disciples and she said, do whatever he tells you. In other words, what she's saying is, I trust Jesus. I trust that he knows what's right and what's good and what's best. So go do whatever he tells you to do. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to do that too. Even if we don't like what Jesus is telling us to do, even if we're uncomfortable with what Jesus is telling us to do, Jesus knows what's best. Go do what Jesus did, what Jesus tells you to do. Let's pray together. Father, it's so hard for us to believe the truth of the gospel in our lives. There's so much going on in the world around us and even in our own hearts that battles against the truth of your word. So I pray, Father, that even this week, that you would bring the truth of Zephaniah, the truth of the new covenant, the truth of what Jesus has gone through for us, that you would bring that to our hearts and our minds in tangible ways such that we would believe that it's true, that you would deepen our faith in what is true, and that as a result, we would be changed in how we think and how we talk and how we live. Please do this, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.